Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Movember Radio. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a weekly podcast focusing on men's health and the issues that men face today. Each week, we speak with someone from the Movember community, which is over 5 million Mobros and Mo Sisters strong all around the world. And these people are all passionate about changing the face of men's health. If you don't want to ever miss an episode, quite simply, subscribe to us in iTunes or the podcast app of your choice. You can also catch all the episodes at MovemberRadio.com. Today, my guest is former Australian professional soccer player PJ Roberts. PJ has made a home in Singapore where he works as a TV presenter for ESPN. But before retiring, he'd played for both Canberra and Perth when he then relocated to Asia to pursue a sporting career there. In 2013, PJ was diagnosed with cancer. And in this conversation, he shares with us his experience of diagnosis, treatment, recovery, the importance of mateship, and how he's spreading the word about men's health far and wide. Let's talk to PJ. I'm really grateful you've made the time for us today. It's uh, good to talk to you, PJ. How are you, man? Yeah, really good, thanks, Osha. No, all, uh, all very good, mate. Looking forward to a... Uh, well, it's midday here. We're a few hours behind, so a little bit left in the workday, but looking forward to a uh, very casual Friday evening ahead. <laughs> Where in the world are you right now? I'm in Singapore. Yeah, so uh, I've been travelling a little bit this week with work, actually. I was in KL and Jakarta early in the week, but looking forward to a weekend. What do you like most about uh, living there? Look, it's a, it's a very cosmopolitan place. It, it, it's easy to get around. It's very efficient. There's excellent opportunities here. Um, it's vibrant. There's so many different things to do. It's warm all year round. And uh, obviously being based in Singapore, but travelling a bit for work, you get to to dive into the other countries around the region as well. But coming back to Singapore is just very, very pleasant. An easy place to live. And to add to that, it's very low in tax as well, which we all love, uh, obviously, being from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you've uh, spent a lot of your life playing football, which for our American listeners is what you call soccer. How early, yeah. how early in your life did you know that you were better than the other kids? <laughs> oh, probably in primary school. I think when you, you start to... To sense your ego a little bit more and, and you're getting selected in different representative teams and obviously the other guys around you start to appreciate that a bit more. So I'd have to say probably probably around 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 year three, year four. So you're probably oh, 10, probably about 10 years old, I'd suggest. And uh, so is that, that when you started competing at a higher level, like outside your school against other, other schools or maybe state level or something like that? Yeah, well, I actually went to I went to an all boys private school, Maris Brothers, in Canberra, where I grew up, and that was a, a very big rugby union school. 
a lot of private schools are. So a lot of my, my best mates were actually rugby guys. So I actually played a little bit with the school, but it was mainly with a club team. Um, and the club team that, that I played with growing up was very much a community club. And then that progressed into a club that was called Canberra Croatia. I was a, a very blonde-haired, blue-eyed Australian running around in a Croatian community. <laughs> <laughs> when you are competing at that level as a kid, does it make you grow up a little faster, do you think? It does. It does. I, I can't profess how important sport is for a, you know, for a child's development. I mean, regardless of, of, of what type of sport it is or what level, just the ability to participate in sport teaches kids so much. I mean, obviously teamwork is, is one that is very difficult to learn in, a, in another area, but, you know, the ability to compete, the ability to win and lose, um, you know, the, the effort, the enthusiasm, the intensity, um, the collaboration required, there's, there's so much that, that kids can learn from it. So I think for me, yeah, definitely, you, you, you learn to deal with a lot of those things. And, and then when you're playing at a level where you're obviously being selected in you know, different teams and representative teams, you appreciate the the gravity of the situation at a, at a pretty young age and, and yet obviously learn to deal with that and, you know, the, the different opportunities to have the opportunity to travel even at a young age and, and, you know, being away from home. And I remember missing so many you know, school holidays because I was in different tournaments or different training camps, you know, even from primary school age and, you know, missed most of my mates' 18th and 21st birthdays and what have you and weddings because you're away travelling. But those experiences... You don't really get afford them in um, in different ways. So yeah, for sure, for sure. I can't I can't uh, I can't profess the benefits of it enough for young kids. Actually, you were uh, you were quite a young man when you won a scholarship to go and play in the US. What did what did that do to you? Mate, that was uh, that was great fun, by the way. Yeah, seventeen when I went over there, all the way back in nineteen ninety three. Um, I was I had the option to sign with a national league club in Australia, um, go to England and trial. Um, or go to America and pursue the, um, the soccer scholarship where you could obviously study at the same time. And the, the approach, which I'm glad I did take, given the amount of injuries I had in my career, was to, was to go to America and get an education. So there's hardly anyone doing it back in 1993. It was, uh, it was quite a unique opportunity and it was yeah, a different class. It was difficult. You'd go back in the off-season and you're trying to explain it to your mates and your friends and, yeah, they got, they're only recollection or understanding of what your life is like there is watching all the uh, various college movies that they'd see on TV. So it's always an interesting discussion. So you, you went to an all-boys school and then you're, you're surrounded by men at the football club and then you're travelling all around the country with, with men. <laughs> I think I know where you're going with this. Well, I'm just going to say in team sports, especially male team sports, teasing each other is it's a pretty big part of what it is to be on a team. What does it do for a bunch of guys when they're constantly taking the piss out of each other? Oh, that, that's exactly right. The banter is actually the, the part that like when I had to stop playing and to answer this question, when I, I had to stop at 29 because of injury and that that's actually what you miss the most about the game, that, that banter and the, the, the camaraderie that you have on and off the field of, they're taking the piss out of each other left, right and centre about everything and anything. They're travelling away together, they're socialising. You know, you really, you go out and on the field and fight for each other. It's that, That's the bit that you really you really miss. But you're right, when, when, you, when you put all these uh, professional athletes into, a, uh, into one environment where they're all strong and athletic and obviously everyone thinks they're really good looking as well when they're in that point in time, the, uh, you, can, you can imagine the, the level of banter that goes on. At times it can be... 
ridiculously ruthless and you know, you've got to have a pretty thick skin, but it's all in, it's all in good jest. And I think the, the beauty of it was that whilst you, you weren't best mates with everyone on the team, everyone had a, had a common respect for each other and you appreciated the role that they played in the team. So that obviously, that camaraderie that existed was just a, a different class. And, you know, you, you don't get it anywhere else. Um, you know, you finish work and you go in the workplace and it's different, but that, that same level of intensity and, and mateship, you know, going out on the football field and fighting for each other and you, you, you don't get it anywhere else. So that's, that's the bit that you really miss most when you, uh, when you sort of hang up the boots. I watched a mate go through this, but I'd love to hear your perspective on it. He was uh, he was in selection for the Australian squad when he was a young man, and uh, he did his knee and then missed that selection camp, and that was it. But you managed to play for quite a while, all through your twenties, as a as a professional. But then your career ended quite suddenly. What was it like to suddenly lose something that you'd committed your whole life to? It was it was it was a really strange experience, actually. I mean, le- leading into it, I I had a lot of injuries even from a young age. So I, I spent a lot of time on the sidelines, but sort of managed to just sort of battle my way back in there. But the older I got, I knew that my body was sort of only capable of sustaining me for a certain period of time. So I, I knew that it was definitely getting sort of harder and harder. Um, so what I actually had to retire from was um, from a lower back injury. So I basically had arthritis in the um, facet joints in my lower back. So it's not the sort of injury that you can, you can fix. You've just got to try and slow it down. So I was having injections in there regularly and um, having MRI updates just to see how it was degenerating. And basically it was just kicking on really fast when I was playing in Asia, just because the the fields are really hard. So you play heaps of games, the fields are really hard. So the body was just copping a hammering. So I was obviously aching and hurting a lot. And I uh, I knew that I might be able to squeeze out another year. But then when I had all the the tests and saw the spinal surgeon, it was a... it was actually after the cup final here in Singapore and I, I saw the, the spinal surgeon the next day and my mum came over to watch the cup final, which we, which we lost, unfortunately. But I um, saw the spinal surgeon, he gave me the, uh, the bad news and I basically retired there and then. So it wasn't, it wasn't actually a tough decision to say that I'm not going to play anymore because I'd done quite a bit of damage to my body. But to then get on with the rest of your life was really difficult, even though I'd, you know, I'd studied, I'd we got offered a contract doing the TV work straight away. So it looked like the transition, you know, on the outside was really smooth and, and easy. It was actually just a really uh, challenging time mentally because like what you said, you define yourself as a footballer your whole life and then all of a sudden you become a, an ex-footballer. Were you able to, you know, stay in touch with the guys that you played with? Were What were the conversations you were having with those guys during that transition? I did actually. The, the football coach that I had... Um, yeah, it was a great confidant, a gentleman by the name of Scott O'Donnell. So he was Australian coaching over here and, you know, he was a, a great support. And it was funny, I didn't really, I didn't make such a concerted effort of keeping in touch with a lot of the guys. I mean, we, we kept in touch, but it was almost as if you wanted to draw a line in the sand and, and jump over it and sprint as fast as you can into your new life. So I sort of... You know, just jumped into the TV work, jumped into finishing my study and, and jumped into all these different social circles, almost as if you wanted to try and just move on as quickly as possible. So it was, a, it was probably my own little way of dealing with it. But you're sort of travelling around quite a bit and you're living in different places. So you, you develop these very strong friendships and mateships over a very short period. And then you, all of a sudden you might be shifting off to another team and it sort of starts again. So you end up with mates all over the place. <laughs> As we talked about before, simply by playing soccer, by playing professional sport, you're exposed to more men 
than most men would ever be exposed to. What, <laughs> what did you notice about the kind of men that play professional sports and their relationship to their health? They, you're right in the sense that hanging out with a lot of men, it's, um, it's probably one of the toughest things about playing professionally in the sense that you're not actually, unless you make an effort or you've got a girlfriend or what have you, you're not actually dealing with a lot of girls purely because, as you mentioned, you, you, you're training and you're generally socialising and that's the only time. The health outlook's interesting, obviously, because you most of the time you're just doing what you're being told. You go to training and they tell you what to do, they tell you what to, to eat, they're feeding you, so it's not, it's not that challenging. But the health bit in relation to it probably becomes a bit excessive in the sense that you're looking for every single competitive edge to, to be you know, the best that you can be. It, it probably starts to impinge on being a little bit unhealthy because you put the body under probably a bit of undue stress in relation to overuse injuries and what have you. But I think from, from, that, from that perspective, to be the, the very best player you can be is all encompassing from everything, you know, sleep, diet. Um, so from that perspective, being healthy and being the, the, the most healthy you can be obviously lends itself to being a better footballer. What about, say, for example, when, you know, guys are guys, we, we break up with women, we have kids, sometimes unexpectedly. How did, how did you rally around each other when, when challenges like that turned up? There's obviously a few um, oh, moments that come to mind when, you know, one of the guys' dad passed away unexpectedly and one of the lads found out he'd uh, fathered child unexpectedly, as you mentioned, and um, I think that the support network is superb when you're in that sort of environment because you'll, you'll always have obviously a few guys in the team that are your better mates, but everyone actually is really supportive. You're living in such a, a bubble to a certain degree. Your, your lifestyle is so different to anyone else's. When everyone else is taking it easy and looking forward to a Friday night and socialising on the weekend, we, we go in lockdown because you've basically got a game. Um, and then during the week when you've got a bit of spare time during the day, everyone's working. So it's such a different um, existence. So one of the, the great things is that everyone's on the same wavelength. So if you've got girlfriends, they'd end up socialising together as well. And for, for, for tragedies such as that, the, the level of support within the team and the club overall, which is one of the, the beautiful things when you, when you are playing like that, it's not just the players, it's the, the coaching staff and all the admin staff and the... the people running the business from the CEO down to the ticket stewards. It's such a, a beautiful sort of family atmosphere so that the support network is, is quality. Well, you must have been grateful for that when you uh, hit upon the health challenge that, you know, brought us to have our conversations today. Your relationship with Movember is a very personal one. A few years ago, you were diagnosed with testicular cancer. Would it be okay, PJ, if you took us through that experience? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it was a, all a bit of a sort of came out of nowhere, actually. I was... Um, now that I'm over 40, I get invited to play in all these Masters football tournaments. So they get these all-star teams together. And um, I was supposed to play in this tournament, but I'd actually hurt my ankle training for it during the week, which was, which was not unusual. So I, I couldn't play, but I was going to go down there and just you know, hang out with them, sort of coach it and you know, just sort of be a part of it and put my, my, my sort of face and name to it. And I just started to get this uh, sort of dull ache in my scrotum. And I thought, oh, that's a bit, bit, bit random. So I just sort of took it easy at home. And then it just started to escalate and just started to become more painful over the space of about three to four hours to the point where I thought another hour of this and I'm going to be lying in the, uh, in the fetal position on the floor in absolute excruciating pain. So I, I quickly jumped in a taxi and went to, the, went to the hospital. And before I knew it, I was um, being told I got testicular cancer and they were going to operate 
to uh, take the uh, take the tumor out, which was the testicle. So it it all happened really really quickly. On the same day. On the same day. Yeah. So from I think I got into hospital at about oh, six p.m. I guess, and then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. By 7.30, I was being told, right, we're going to operate. I was drugged out and ready to go. So I remember, I remember having a quick conversation with my mum and dad are divorced, but I quickly called them both separately when they were in Australia saying, oh, I'm just about to go into surgery. I've got testicular cancer. <laughs> I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> so, so dad quickly jumped on a plane and came over. So by the time I was uh, sort of waking up a bit groggy from surgery, dad was, uh, dad was over. <laughs> bit, of, bit of a funny experience. That must have been great to have your father there. Yeah, it was great actually because about... About two months before, actually, my long-term girlfriend and I had broken up. So I, uh, it was, it was actually interesting. When I was on the way into the taxi, I thought, oh, geez, I better, I better call someone. So I quickly called one of my mates and said, mate, I think I'm in a bit of strife here. I'm on, on my way to the hospital. <laughs> so I, I let him know, and then he obviously um, let my, my ex-girlfriend know. So she popped along as well, which was a great support. But, but yeah, it was, it was great to have that over there. And then he, he sort of stayed. Stay for about a month, actually, because the first step is to say, right, you've got testicular cancer. The first step is to remove the tumour, which they were doing. But then the second step is to find out what stage you've got, how bad have you got it. That's the, that's the bit that was great having Dad over there just as, as a support as you're just sort of sitting there waiting for the, the test results. Once you did get diagnosed, once you, those test results did come through, what kind of action did you take? Yeah, so basically, had, uh, I mean, you had a couple of, week, uh, couple of days in, in hospital you're having blood tests and CT scans to wow. diagnose what stage. So from the surgery to the date that you actually know what stage it is, it was probably about five, seven days. I sort of approached it in the sense that, you know, there's not a lot you can do about it. So I just sort of got on with, uh, got on with the week and cruising around with dad and sort of got back to work, just not telling anyone because I didn't want to tell anyone because obviously they'd all be sitting around wondering what stage it was. So when I knew exactly what the, the outcome was and what treatment was required, then I sort of disclosed it. So I think I, I, think I said to everyone, I just had a, uh, a minor old football injury I needed operating on. That's why I missed a few days of work. <laughs> a little <Right>. white lie. <laughs> yeah, but you, know, you want to be sure. But once you, once you did know, how was it to have a conversation with your mates? 
Yeah, it was, it was, it was strange. A lot of people think that you're going to drop dead in front of them. <laughs> the, the, the word or the term cancer strikes so much fear, primarily because obviously we know that it can be lethal. And, and most people know of someone who has, has passed away or has had a pretty tough time with it. But I think the bit that is probably misunderstood a little bit is that cancer isn't a death sentence, that you can get on with life and it can be treated. And so it's probably that level of understanding that you need to sort of delve into a little bit more. Um, and then there's obviously the aspect that probably the, the most common comment was like, what, you're, you're fit, you're an ex-footballer, you exercise regularly, you're on TV, but geez, how, how can it happen to you? Is that sort of uh, is that sort of one? So it, people think that there's obviously something that you did that is connected to it. That there must have been something that you know there's some reason for getting it. You know, if it's lung cancer, then you know obviously it can be because of smoking. But something like testicular cancer, they obviously don't know the, the rationale or the reason why it happens. So it's obviously just trying to explain that as well. <laughs> and then and then obviously being in. Uh, being in Singapore and Asia, you, you get lots of tips for all the lovely herbal medicines that they think you should take, which is quite entertaining as well. Oh, I'm not going to promote them on this show, that's for sure. But... No, 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 I must admit I didn't engage in any. Well, I'm glad, and I'm sure a lot of animals are very glad as well. <laughs> but, you know, as we discussed before, the, the kind of nature of how men in the team treat each other is a, a sign of love. I'm going to imagine that very quickly after you've had a testicle removed, the like, how long did it take for the jokes to start? <laughs> I think I basically preempted the jokes, which was which was probably my way of trying to put people at ease. Because obviously, you, you know, you walk into a room and you know, I, people know that you've had it, and you know, they don't really quite know what to, to say. So I'd, I'd sort of uh, be pretty casual about it. So I think well, I think one of the earliest experiences I had was I was invited to speak for the, uh, you know, Breast Cancer Awareness Day, the big pink day. So they had a, we had a big event at the Australian High Commission over here and there was about 150 ladies there. You know, I was invited to talk about my cancer experience and I sort of started it by going, I've told my mates about this and this has got to be the highlight of my year. I get to talk about my one testicle in front of 150 women. This is different class. So, so immediately it sort of put a lot of people at ease. So I, I think I, uh, I preempted a lot of the jokes, I think. So, <laughs> and then, and then obviously you can imagine most of my best mates just wanted to look, have a look at it. They wanted to check it out. They, they, they wanted to know what it looked like. What, what does it look like? Is it the same? And you basically go, mate, it's like a massive bean bag, but you've just taken half the beans out of it. <laughs> so, so there's obviously plenty of banner floating around about that. <laughs> well, at least, at least you know they care. But did it at least give you an opportunity to? an opportunity to start a conversation with them about their health? It did. It did. Some, some, some very funny ones. Actually, one of, the, one of the strangest ones was we were actually in Mongolia, of all places, commentating on a football game. We'd finished the, we'd finished the game and myself and the other commentator is an English lad. He's, a, he's, he's one of my best mates over here. We're in the pub having a few beers and uh, he's going, mate, I've got, I've got to have a look. I've got to check it out. So, so anyway, I'm putting my pants down while I'm going to the bathroom and he's looking at it. And uh, before we knew it, there were two people walking in, standing behind us, quickly scurried out, thinking that we were going to get up to some shenanigans with each other. So, <laughs> so obviously we've left having a bit of a giggle, but 
but it, but it does actually. It, it, it's I think the lead on is like, mate, go get it checked out because they they all go, geez, if you can get it, anyone can get it. Is their sort of understanding? And I'm going, yeah, mate, go and go and check it. <laughs> go and get yourself checked out. Oh, it sounds great to hear. What did your what did your recovery look like? It was two weeks until I started chemotherapy because I had to. Um, obviously, the chemotherapy can smash your um, your fertility rate. So I went and froze a few gallons of sperm <laughs> just to make sure I'd had enough. So that's uh, so you have to do that basically every second day, I think it was. So I had to delay chemotherapy for um, for one week because my my uh, oh, the fertility levels were a bit low. So I had to bank a little bit more. So I waited two weeks after the surgery and then I started chemotherapy and the chemotherapy uh, went for about eight weeks. So you just sort of go into lockdown for, for eight weeks and go through the treatment. And then once that was finished, I was um, a bit skinny with no hair, but then feeling fine and then sort of just delve straight back into life. It didn't, it didn't hit me too bad. Again, chemotherapy is awful and, and, and sounds awful. And I know that some of the people I was having treatment with were having a really tough time with it, but it actually didn't hit me too bad. Well, mate, I'm I'm thrilled that, and I'm sure you are thrilled as well that you've, you you feel you're recovered. Do you feel recovered? Yeah, yeah. Look, it's as soon as the chemotherapy finished, I felt recovered. It, it's such a it's such a weird sort of experience to go through. I'm I'm having tests every three months. So I'm actually about two months away from uh, hitting the two year mark, which is a a pretty impressive milestone in the whole cancer treatment and relief. They sort of suggest that once you hit two years, then you're pretty much on the home straight and then the tests move themselves out to every six months. So apart from having to, apart from me getting a reminder from the oncologist every three months that I'm, I'm due for a test, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even think that I've, uh, I wouldn't even think that I've, uh, I've had anything, which is, um, which is a bit random. And I, I look back to, to photos and, you know, I do a few, there's been a few magazine articles and what have you over here about it just to um, obviously talk about my experience and, you know, it's times like this right now where I almost need to pinch myself and say, did I, did I really go through all of that? It, right. it still, still seems a little bit surreal in many ways. A lot of blokes might be wondering this, so I'm just going to have to ask, even though you did uh, take precautions and um, put some in the freezer, is everything back in working order? Yeah, I was, I was pretty quick once I'd uh, finished chemotherapy and, uh, and mum and my stepdad moved out of the house. I was pretty quick to give it a nudge and see how it was going. And yeah, mate, it was fine. <laughs> Well, well, look, you know, this is what makes oh, you a man. It's what makes well, you a man. Exactly. Well, that that was from uh, obviously with someone else, but you know, on a personal basis, I was I was pretty sure to to try and uh, knock a load off pretty quick to make sure it was in working order. So I think I might have even done it when I was in hospital, to be honest. I think I think I was pretty keen to see if it was still working then. So I yeah, I made sure I gave it a uh, gave it a quick checkup. <laughs> <laughs> you've uh, you've spent. Most of your life as an elite athlete with the exercise and nutrition, as you mentioned, that goes along with that. Now that you've retired, how do you take care of yourself? I mean, I exercise regularly now. It's, it's obviously different forms of exercise just because your, your body's a bit battered from, uh, from the career. So, I, I mean, I, I sort of run and swim and cycle and do some light weights without trying to, uh, trying to hurt myself too much. But you just sort of become disciplined with it, which is really the key. That's the, the hardest part of continuing to do it when, when you sort of get on with life and you know, you're busy with work and you're busy traveling. And I, I manage a day job 
which is my corporate career. And then I'm in the studio, you know, once or so in the evening during the week. And then every Saturday, Sunday night, you're in the studio covering the football. And so it just becomes really busy. So you just got to make sure that you can squeeze in, you know, 20, 30 minutes every day, regardless. Obviously, there's a few days where you're going to you're going to miss it for whatever reason. But you just know within yourself that you you feel better when you when you do a bit of exercise. I, I find it getting up early and grinding out a bit of exercise and you know, you just sort of have a, a different bounce in your step and a really more positive outlook on the day ahead as opposed to getting an extra 30 minutes of sleep and, and doing it. So I think it's just the real discipline of, of sticking to it, which is the part that is probably most challenging for most people, finding that motivation to do it. Because it, it's so so difficult to sort of get into the groove, but it's so easy to get out of the groove. Mate, it's been great to talk to you today. We end up these interviews with the same three questions, all right? So... When it comes <laughs> when it comes to Movember, what kind of mo do you grow? Oh mate, mine is prepubescent ginger scattered. <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite the best way to. I I just get what I, I even try to give myself a head start. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I, uh, I I try to get away with it. I think it used to be well, actually, the chemotherapy kind of uh, it it sort of changed the texture of of. Um, and, and colour of my hair a little bit. So it's a bit thicker and it's a bit darker as it previously. And then also my facial hair a little bit a little bit different. So on, on the moustache side, mate, mine is shocking. Mine looks, <laughs> mine looks just appalling. So I, I, I actually can't answer that question. But, I just but grow what, whatever I can. What kind of conversations do you get to have because of your moustache? I actually get a lot of people seeing my moustache because of the TV work. So... All of a sudden, I'm on TV with a with a porno moustache, which just does not look like me. Doesn't look good on me. Just looks very random. So it's um it generates it generates plenty of discussion as to mate, what are you doing? <laughs> what, what, what are you what are you thinking there? And then uh, and then obviously when you explain it, they go, oh okay okay yeah fair point. You know it looks rubbish, don't you? And I'm like yeah no I do. Thanks for that. <laughs> mate, trust me, you're not alone. You're not, not alone with that. I don't have the pounds per square inch. I try as hard as I can. It, I think like the last day, it might get across the line as acceptable, but for the first three weeks, oh boy. Exactly. And, and that's actually the that's actually the, the probably the challenge that we have raising awareness for Movember in Asia, where Asian men just in general are, are not that hairy. <laughs> so for, for for Asian men to in, in, engage and embrace Movember, it, it's a humbling experience, like it is for me, because uh, th- their hairy lip is not is, is not quite that hairy most of the time. <laughs> so, mate, if you could pick up your phone right now and uh, dial a number and have your 18 year old self answer, what would you tell young PJ? Mate, embrace every opportunity. I think I'd uh, that would be the, the the key point. Make every post a winner and and do your very very best at everything you put your mind to. I think one of the takeaways from looking back on my life is that you, you never know what's around the corner. What can appear at the time to be a real setback and a massive challenge can actually turn into one of the best opportunities and lead you in a different direction that you never thought existed. So if I look at my football career, for example, you know, whether it be surgery or whether it be you know, needing to find another club, what looked at the time a massive setback actually turned into an enormous opportunity in a different way. So I think it would be Embrace every opportunity. Do your very, very best at, at everything you do and, and uh, always have a smile on your face. Nice. And finally, what do you appreciate most about your mates? That they are very, very honest. They, they give you a very honest appraisal. I think when in the life that I, I, I lead now with 
you know, being on TV in particular, you've always got plenty of people patting on your back and quite excited to see you and talk to you. I think one of the great things with with my mates is <laughs> I'll throw out there the honest truth. And uh, I think that's that's so important to have people in your life like that. And uh, and that's what I get out of my mates here. They're, they're, they're great fun. They're the best mates. But you know that if you need a you know, a, uh, someone to lean on or you need some honest feedback or if, even if you just need, you know, a, a really good solid chat about what's going on, you, you can get that from them. So that's, uh, that'd be the most valuable part. PJ, it's been absolutely great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us on November Radio, mate. Osha, thanks for having us, mate. We'll speak to you soon. Looking forward to it. Take care, mate. Bye, mate. That was PJ Roberts. Quite a story. Thanks so much for being here. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, if you didn't, either way, please rate and review and comment on the show in iTunes. That helps us out a lot. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can keep up to date with what's happening on the show by following Movember on Facebook. And for anything else, you'll find it over at movemberradio.com. Thank you so much for listening. Look after yourself, and we'll talk to you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.